Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Manisha Sinha again, the Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut and the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. I am delighted to join you again on our regular show this month, uh, which it so happens uh, this Saturday, uh, we have an amazing confluence of uh, some of the greatest uh, religions and their most important holidays. Um, We know that this weekend celebrates Passover, uh, and we also know how this weekend is also Easter. And it falls in the holy month of Ramadan for most people of the Muslim faith. Um, so we again have a weekend that celebrates all these diverse religions. I should also mention, as President and Vice President Kamala Harris noticed, um, this is also a time when we celebrate um, a spring festival that is holy in the Sikh religion in India and also the anniversary of the birth of the Saint Mahavir, who was the founder of another religion called Jainism in India. So it is a very religious weekend. And, you know, the the religions that we are uh, more familiar with, the sort of great monotheistic uh, faiths of the world, uh, celebrate their important holidays this weekend. Um, yesterday was Good Friday. It was also the day uh, when uh, President Abraham Lincoln died after being assassinated on the evening of April 14th. The fact that he died on Good Friday was taken by many devout Americans, including African Americans, as a sign. Um, And, you know, when I think about these religious holidays, I always think about history uh, because of the ways in which abolitionists, particularly black abolitionists, use the Christian faith to criticize slavery and to criticize slaveholders as being unchristian, as departing from the golden rule of do unto others. Uh, and seeing slavery in general as an unchristian institution. This sort of thinking became actually quite common um, for African Americans uh, who in the, you know, in a, in a few generations uh, converted to Christianity. And I should point out that many slaveholders resisted this. They resisted um sharing the Christian faith with enslaved people initially because they thought that they would then be forced to free them or that somehow enslaved people would then become their equals, at least in the eyes of the church. Um, So initially, Southern slaveholders in particular, friend, uh, but finally, in the 18th century, we can see that many slaveholders thought uh, that they could teach a sort of a social control version of Christianity uh, with injunctions like um, servants be obedient to your masters uh, that would in fact help them to preserve slavery. But black people had a different and a more genuine conception of Christianity. Uh, You could see this with some of the earliest black ministers and clergymen uh, who adopted Christianity and founded some of the independent black 
denominations. Uh, people like Absalom Jones and Richard Allen, who founded the famous African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, and gained their independence and had the church incorporated in the face of white attempts to steal their church and to actually um, make sure that they were not independent. Um, uh, we, I think about Richard Allen's uh, famous homily to slaveholders, telling them that uh, they were in fact opening themselves up to divine vengeance because they enslaved a people of African descent, and that that was an essentially unchristian endeavor. Now, this is important to note. Many early Black Christians really identified with the story of uh, the Jewish people and their um, liberation from bondage uh, by divine providence. Uh, that is what Passover celebrates, right? The liberation of the Jewish people from Egyptian bondage. Uh, and the Israelites saw themselves as the chosen people of God for that reason. Uh, many enslaved African Americans and certainly black ministers and preachers like Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, and others in the North also, like Lemuel Haynes, or somebody like George Lael, who founded the African Baptist Church first in Savannah uh, and then later on um, went with the British uh, to Canada. Uh, there was another enslaved person who not only helped found that Baptist Church in the South, but also went to the West Indies and founded one church there. All these stories are in my book, The Slave Scores, A History of Abolition, if you are interested. Uh, but it's important to note that this Christian critique of slavery was something that black Christians in particular developed, uh, and many other Quakers uh, and uh, dissenting Protestant sects, like John Wesley of the Methodists, founder of the Methodists, um, certainly the founder of Quakerism, George Fox, uh, and particularly many of his other followers, um, condemned slavery as going against the golden rule and as being unchristian. Um, and this is something that we need to remember as we celebrate uh, Easter and Passover uh, and we think of the life of Christ. Uh, many African Americans also identified with the suffering of Christ uh, because, in fact, of the daily sufferings that they were subjected to under slavery and after that. So there were many ideas, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that gave rise to a kind of an anti-slavery Christianity amongst African Americans. Um, and they used these ideas amongst themselves. We know in the South, as I said earlier, slaveholders want to control the message of Christianity. I actually came across a case of an enslaved man who had a Bible with him um, in which he had made certain markings. And he was arrested and thrown into jail because they said that he had marked the Bible inappropriately. Apparently, he had marked the Bible for those particular verses on uh, the liberation of the Jewish people from Egyptian bondage. Uh, and they thought that he was um, propagating subversive ideas. 
we know that slaveholders wanted enslaved people to worship in their plantation chapels where they could have white ministers basically preach a social control version of Christianity to them. But enslaved people always worshipped on their own. They chose their own preachers. Uh, and you can see the invisible black church being born under slavery, where enslaved people would worship on their own in hush arbors, in uh, meetings of their own, uh, and even worship in African styles, adopt uh, African styles of worship and mix it with Christianity. Uh, you can even see that till today in black churches, the style of worship, the songs, the call and response, a lot of it comes from the African heritage too. So we have something distinctive, uh, which is African-American Christianity and which really did try to um, assimilate all these messages of freedom from the Bible from Christianity and put them to use to act against slavery. Um, there's a very good historian of um, black folk culture and uh, enslaved uh, people's spirituals, what we call slave spirituals, uh, who once said that if you really want to know the ideology and the mindset and the worldview of enslaved people, you just need to look at um, the slave spirituals. It'll tell you about people's longings for freedom. It will tell you about the travails that they had to suffer under slavery. And it will also tell you about how they viewed emancipation as the day of Jubilee or Jubilo. That comes straight from the Bible uh, and from the liberation of people, of Jewish, uh, Jewish people. Um, and so you can see how uh, enslaved people also use biblical history um, to really uh, inform their own longing for freedom. Um, and I should mention, of course, um, that there were many enslaved people. Um, in fact, um, um, uh, there is uh, a historian by the name of Michael Gomez um, who says uh, that um, that there were more Muslim slaves than we are aware of, um, and that uh, these many of these Muslim slaves who were brought from uh, from Africa um, were actually literate. Uh, and that many of them were able to win their their freedom um, because they were literate. Uh, and um, one of them, uh, a very famous one, was in fact Abdul Rahman Ibn Ibrahim, um, or he was known as Ibrahima, uh, and uh, he was supposed to be an African prince. Uh, who was sold to enslaved people. Uh, and so some people even refer to him as Prince. Um, actually um, was enslaved for nearly 40 years in the South before he managed to win his freedom. And he managed to win his freedom through the intervention of uh, President John Quincy Adams uh, and the, his Secretary of State at that time, which was Henry Clay, um, they managed to uh, get donations. They, he went on tours all over where he was able to win his freedom 
and was able to uh, return to Africa. Um, uh, what is interesting is that uh, these cases actually happened um, in in the South, where you had even elites in Africa, or what Ibrahima was part of, a kind of an elite, edu- educated man. Um, and uh, unfortunately, of course, um, he went back uh, to Africa, to Monrovia, Liberia, the the country that was founded by the American Colonization Society, of which Henry Clay was the president. Uh, their plan was to simply uh, repatriate all uh, free black people back to Africa. Uh, and uh, most black abolitionists rejected that plan. They want, They thought that they had been born and brought up in the United States and had actually contributed to its success and wanted to stay here. In any case, Ibrahima actually went back to Monrovia where he caught a fever and, and died. Um, and he was not able to see his homeland or his children who were left behind in the United States. Um, but it shows you that there were also Muslim slaves, uh, and Michael Gomez argues that many of these Muslim slaves were very um, observant, and they refused to convert to Christianity, and they continued to speak and write in Arabic, and they continued to worship according to their own religion and its rituals. So this month when we celebrate Ramadan, it's important to note their contribution also. Finally, I should say that uh, most African Americans really did view emancipation uh, as this uh, religious, virtually biblical event in which slavery was ended. Um, and in fact, when Abraham Lincoln announced that in 1862, September, he had already decided in July of 1862 to issue an emancipation proclamation. But in September 1862, he told uh, the, the world, and especially the slaveholders in the Confederacy, that if you do not stop this war, I am going to issue an emancipation proclamation on the 1st of January 1863. So when the 1st of January came along, you had... Um, black people uh, all over the country, black abolitionists in Boston, like Frederick Douglass, uh, but also former slaves who had won their freedom during the Civil War, uh, especially in areas occupied by the Union Army, like the Sea Islands and the Low Country in South Carolina. All these people gathered around uh, in worshipful silence, in churches, in meeting halls, waiting uh, for the word to come from the wire in Washington, D.C., that emancipation uh, had been promulgated, that President Lincoln had issued, as he had promised, his emancipation proclamation. And this was the so-called watch night in which black people uh, waited for that word to come down the wires. And, and when it did come, they immediately uh, celebrated 
uh, openly. They were not like modern-day historians passing the Emancipation Proclamation and saying, oh, this is too legalistic. Oh, this sounds like uh, uh, an expedient military gesture. Oh, this did not do this. Uh, or it did not free enslaved people in Union territories, only those that were in the Confederacy. Uh, many historians and lawyers will look at the Emancipation Proclamation and look at the details in there and pass it out. But But Black people were not doing that. They knew that this was... Uh, a turning point in the war uh, where, in fact, slavery had been publicly, or, or abolition, I should say, uh, the end of slavery had been publicly made uh, by Lincoln into the aim of the Union. Uh, and they celebrated emancipation as such. They celebrated it as the day of jubilee, as the day of jubilee. Uh, you can see this with uh, Frederick Douglass, who immediately broke out into song. Uh, those spirituals uh, that enslaved people had sung for generations, um, their longings for freedom. Um, similarly, in, in South Carolina, they gave thanks. They gave thanks to divine providence, to God, uh, to Lincoln for uh, being uh, uh, informed uh, by the abolitionists and by their own struggles for freedom uh, and for issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. They thanked abolitionists. They thanked the Union Army that that actually promulgated freedom uh, in the Civil War. Uh, and, of course, they were mindful of their own efforts uh, in bringing about that day, in resisting slavery, in always hoping and praying for freedom, uh, and during the war, voting with their feet and enacting their own freedom. So this became kind of a religious event, virtually, uh, for many African Americans. And they imbued that moment with that sort of divine religious feeling, um, which, uh, of course, was the hallmark of uh, Christian worship amongst black people uh, in the independent black churches. Um, so I, I really think that as we celebrate Easter and Passover, uh, that we remember that. Um, I should also mention that uh, abolitionists, of course, also contributed to this, including white abolitionists who had fought uh, against slavery and the slave trade. Uh, and one of the most uh, popular Christian hymns all over the world today was actually written by a repentant slave trader in Britain by the name of John Newton, who became an abolitionist. And that was Amazing Grace. I don't think many people know that Amazing Grace was written against the slave trade and by an abolitionist. Um, and to me, uh, that hymn speaks to the longing of freedom of everyone. Uh, and uh, it was, in fact, uh, the Indian uh, nationalist, the founder of the nation in India, Mahatma Gandhi's favorite hymn was uh, Amazing Grace. One of his favorite hymns was Amazing Grace. Um, and we know, of course, that President Obama sang Amazing Grace at the historic Amy Church uh, in Charleston in the summer of 2015 when it was attacked uh, by a neo-Confederate uh, who murdered worshippers and the minister in cold blood. 
Um, so, uh, you know, we, we, we think about all these hymns and Christian traditions. Uh, we can connect them very easily to the history of abolition and to the long struggle um, against slavery. Um, I should also uh, mention that uh, this month was uh, also a historic month because we it led to the confirmation of the first black woman as a justice in the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, and I think Ketanji uh, Jackson Brown Brown Jackson was so um, was so inspiring in her testimony uh, and was so graceful in the very rigorous process that she had to go through even uh, when um, she was being uh, insulted. Uh, she showed amazing grace, if I can say that, in the way she handled herself and answered those questions. Uh, and I don't know if all of you watched those hearings, uh, but if you did, uh, I think what really caught our imagination was not just the way Justice Pitanji Brown Jackson handled herself uh, and how inspiring she was, um, to everyone, uh, but also if you, in the end, watched Cory Booker's speech defending her after all those attacks and slurs, all made up, all fictitious. Uh, and um, Cory Booker, in his speech, uh, said not only about the amazing achievement that she represented just by being there, by being nominated, uh, but uh, he also said that, you know, God has brought you here and God has your back. Uh, and when he made that speech, all those people who attacked her, uh, they were so petty that they walked out. They, they did not even stay to hear Senator Booker defend uh, Justice Jackson. Um, and in a way, they reminded me of all those slaveholders who demeaned and who uh, did not understand the message of Christianity the way in which the enslaved people did. Uh, that enslaved people had a better idea of what it means to be a Christian person and to follow the golden rule and the gospel of Christ. Uh, much better understanding of it uh, than those who enslaved them uh, who were decidedly unchristian and even advocating unchristian ideas uh, like uh, the different origins of the races. Uh, that goes against the Bible. We all know we, that the human race was descended from Adam and Eve, and, and there were actually Christian ministers who, in the South, in, in order to defend slavery, either made up stories about racial differences <clears throat> that are not in the Bible, or they would say uh, buy into pseudo-scientific ideas of the multiple origins of man, which goes completely against the, the, the single origin of man in the Bible. So they were not good Christians. Uh, they certainly did not know the Bible and did not understand the message of Christ the way their own enslaved people did. And I think when we think about Easter this weekend and we think about the assassination of Lincoln uh, by a neo-Confederate uh, sympathizing actor from Maryland, um, who said that he assassinated black people 
mainly uh, assassinated, sorry, Lincoln, mainly because of his dying uh, words in favor of black citizenship. Uh, we should remember that. And we should also remember all the different uh, black freedom fighters who um, really used uh, their understanding of the Bible uh, to fight against slavery, whether it was Harriet Tubman, who was known as Moses, or Nat Turner, who was uh, a slave preacher. And when he was asked, are you, uh, when he was, after his rebellion, when he was arrested and he was going to be hanged, uh, and his uh, um, uh, the person who was interviewing him, uh, a, a white Southern lawyer by the name of Thomas Gray, who wrote down the confessions of Nat Turner, asked him, aren't you now sorry that you led this rebellion? Uh, and Nat Turner just looked back at him and said, was not Christ crucified? And uh, that man was left speechless. Um, there were others like Denmark Vesey, who was uh, uh, a deacon in the Amy Church in Charleston, uh, who tried to lead a rebellion uh, in Charleston. His conspiracy was found out and hundreds were executed, including Denmark Vesey himself. Um, what's interesting about uh, this is that they destroyed the Amy Church. Um, the slaveholding authorities in South Carolina, they burnt down that Amy Church. But after the Civil War, that church was built again by Denmark Vesey's son, Robert Vesey. And that was the church that continues today in Charleston. That was the church uh, in which the worshipers were attacked in 2015 uh, and where President Obama went um, and where he sang um, Amazing Grace. So, you know, I think it's really important for us to know that our history today is really connected to the past, to the struggles of the past, uh, and we should understand what an important role uh, both Christianity but also the story of Jewish liberation from Egyptian bondage has played in the histories of slavery and abolition uh, in the United States. And for those of you who are interested, I would again refer you to my book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, that has many of these stories in it. Um, and I wish you all uh, a wonderful and peaceful Easter and Passover. Uh, and uh, for the month of Ramadan, I wish all Muslims Ramadan Mubarak. Uh, so thank you very much for listening to me again. Uh, and I hope to talk to you next month uh, on our monthly show on the on history, on black history, uh, and its resonance in current events today. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. One second, one second. I have to congratulate Dr. Manisha Sanai on her Guggenheim Fellowship. Could you tell us exactly what that is? It's a very Thank you, Leslie. Yes, uh, I received good tidings, as they would say, uh, last week. Uh, I actually knew about it privately before, but uh, the public announcement was made last week that I had received a Guggenheim Fellowship, which is one of the most prized fellowships in academia and amongst uh, artists and scholars. Uh, the Guggenheim Fellowship is seen as sort of the pinnacle of the kind of fellowships that one can get as an academic in all fields, 
natural sciences, social sciences, and the humanities. Uh, and when I applied for it, I did not expect to get it because I knew how difficult it is to get it because thousands of people apply and only a handful are selected. And so I was thrilled when they privately informed me that the committee had accepted my uh, application and had forwarded it to the board of trustees, but that it would not be official until it was approved by the board of trustees and announced, which they did last week. And then in the last Sunday, New York Times, they published the names of all the recipients as they do customarily. Uh, and I was I was thrilled to get it. Uh, I was I felt. I needed to thank everyone who has helped me in this really long journey. Um, and it was a fellowship for my next book, which is going to be on the reconstruction of American democracy after the Civil War, where I continue the story of abolition to see how black people and abolitionists tried to create an interracial democracy in this country after the war. Uh, and how that was overthrown again. Uh, and we had the nightmare of Jim Crow settling in in this country until the civil rights movement. So I'm telling that long story in my new book. Uh, and I'm just thrilled that Guggenheim felt that uh, they could support that new book project. And how many books have you published? So I have uh, authored and co-authored two books that are solely by myself, a third in which I contributed with others. Uh, Then I have edited uh, two other volumes on African-American history, and then I edited another volume uh, on uh, a group of essays on on race uh, and democracy and citizenship in this country. Uh, which was a festive for my advisor. Um, so altogether, that would be six, I guess, uh, books. Uh, but now I'm working on a third monograph, um, which I'm authoring by myself. Excellent. And again, I want to thank you for everything that you've done. Um, I'm humbled to be a part of your journey in a small way, and I wish you a happy Happy holidays to you and your family, who I know they must be proud of you. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you. And wishing you all a happy Easter, too. All right. Bye-bye.